Ezra chapter 4, we left off with this last week. Um, I'm looking in the NIV text right here in the Bible, and we'll look, just begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, this is this is taking place, this opposition to building the temple is taking place in 536, 537 right here. The Jews come back, they, there's the return in 539 Cyrus decree right here on the Cyrus cylinder. Uh, all the nations were sent back. Uh, the Jews are going to arrive, you know, they don't just pack up and fly in. It's going to take them a couple months to get there. So 537, they've returned. 536, they rebuild the altar. And it's at this point right here, they begin to face opposition. Now we're going to pick up again, right, just review last week, because I, I think it's very important that we realize we've got to put this together. Uh, the people that they are facing in uh, in. in in, in uh, Israel, in, in Judea, and in Samaria, and who these people are. The Bible tells us. They face opposition. Uh, that shuts them down until, as we read uh, months ago, we read last week, in 520, two prophets are going to rise, Haggai and Zechariah, and encourage the people. They're going to begin rebuilding the temple, and it will be done by 518. The temple is done. It took them, you know, what, 20 years to get it done, uh, but they, they finished the temple right here. Now, what's confusing about chapter 4 is that is verses 1 through 5. Beginning in verse 6, it's going to go to the year 486 and refer to a letter that's going to be written to Xerxes. Okay, here we are, 530, 520, the temple's built. Excellent. Now, all of a sudden, we're in the time of Xerxes. He looks like Xerxes now is 485. We're actually going to be writing the letter right around 486, and they're going to be writing a letter to Xerxes complaining they want that the building of the city to stop. They've started building the city. We can probably can, uh, safely assume they're building the city walls. They're starting to fortify the city, and in 486, the Persian emperor Xerxes, uh, which is Esther's husband, he's going to war against the Greeks, he's going to lose come back. He's already cast away his, his wife, Vashti. He's got to find a new wife, and that's Esther. That's taking place here. But that's going to be just that first verse, verse 6. It, again, you, you can judge this as you go through because it becomes confusing because that's beginning the reign of Xerxes, verse 6, and then verse 7, and in the days of Artaxerxes. That's his son, Artaxerxes. They're going to write another letter, and that letter is going to be four. Uh, 464, they're going to write a letter to Artaxerxes. That covers a couple verses, or one verse. There's possibly a second letter to Artaxerxes, and we're going to have to decipher through that. I'll show you why. But then Artaxerxes is going to re re respond to this. We're going to have the actual copy of Artaxerxes' letter. Now listen, this has nothing to do with the temple. The temple is going to be built in 516, but as far as we are in the book of Ezra, they're still up here facing opposition. Okay, and here's the problem. They're facing opposition. We rent read Hezekiah and Zechariah. They're going to encourage and rebuild. And then we know from those books that they're going to finish it in 516, but Ezra hasn't recorded this yet. They're still facing the opposition. And then we go down here. We got th three letters down here from before the days of Nehemiah, and Artaxerxes is going to respond right here in 464 and say, no, shut it down. Not until I say you can build the walls, can you build the walls. Well, then in 485, uh, there's going to be uh, someone returning, uh, uh, 
from the city and, uh, and uh, Artaxerxes okay, okay, I issued the decree to restore and rebuild the city. Now again, now we're tying into Daniel. That's the countdown to the Messiah. But anyway, he's going to issue the decree in 485, but then someone's going to return back to Babylon. Now we're in the book of Nehemiah. Someone's going to return from Babylon, and Nehemiah's going to say, how's it going? Are the walls built? They say, no. He issued the decree, but they're, just like the temple, you can rebuild it. It took him 20 years to get it done. He's going to say, you can build the walls, and they're still scared. They're, dis- they're distra- distracted. So Nehemiah's going to have his encounter with Artaxerxes. You know, he walks in with, you know, the wine. And here's one of Artaxerxes' wine bowls. They got the whole set of them there at the British Museum uh, with his name on them uh, in cuneiform. And that's when he's, Nehemiah is going to be sent in 446, is going to be sent back to finish the walls. So this, this, whole, this whole section we're going to see here tonight is about the Jews trying to build the walls of the city in 486, being shut down by Artaxerxes until finally he issues the decree later. But now we're in the book of Nehemiah. So these letters are, in a sense, out of place historically, but they are in position for Ezra, Ezra, who is not going to come until you see here is, here's the return. Here's Joshua and Zerubbabel getting the temple built. Here's Haggai and Zechariah. Here's Ezra writing. Here's Esther. Here's Nehemiah returning. But this is Ezra in 458, leaving Babylon and investigating the city in 458. So Ezra is not going to show up until here. And by that time, Nehemiah is already in position and all these things have happened. So Ezra's writing history. He's writing all this history. He's not even on the scene yet. He's talking about what happened before he got there. And so these letters were all part of the opposition that took place before Ezra arrived. So in Ezra's mind, these letters help capture the opposition against the temple. Oh, and by the way, once that was done, there's also opposition building the walls, uh, and he's just putting it in right here. Now, Ezra, we've got to be careful right here because there, there's the minimalists, the, the liberals uh, uh, that, that destroy the Scripture, as we've said before. They, they know if you are a, a, a liberal, a higher textual critic, you believe that Moses didn't write anything, that all that stuff is legend that the Jews made up while they were in exile because they're like a lost people. They've got no history. They're just zeros. And they decided, hey, you know, we've got to write ourselves some history. Uh, you may see that going on uh, in your own culture, people writing history. Uh, and they just made this all up. And Ezra was one of the guys that came back, and he says, okay, we're going to write some history. And he writes all this stuff down, creates Abraham, creates the ideal of Moses, creates the priesthood, and kind of gets this, this nation of Israel a jump start after they came out of Babylon. Now, archaeology doesn't support that. Uh, history in other writings doesn't support that. Uh, an actual criticism, a fair criticism of a text of the scriptures and the, and the ancient writings doesn't support that. Uh, the internal evidence of the details that are recorded in Genesis way back in 2000 BC fit with the culture. Like you get the, your, 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 your Uritic texts coming up from uh, in the north there underneath Carchemish. Uh, the cultures of that time match Genesis. And these people, if they're making it up in 460 BC, they don't understand what was going on 
2000 BC. They don't understand Egyptian locations and cultures. And all that stuff is interwoven throughout the scripture. So when you start attacking scripture, uh, the only way you're going to be successful is if you're stupid and if your crowd is ignorant and they don't want to believe it. And now you're going to be successful. Of course, but everybody in a circle, everybody's just stupid. It's like you can do whatever you want to. But if you're going to be scientific, archaeology, linguistically accurate, you've got to face the scriptures. Now, with that being said, Ezra is a scribe. He's going to establish the synagogue system so that people can hear and understand the text of scripture. Uh, he's going to be dealing with tra- uh, 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 translation issues. The, the Bible is written in Hebrew. The people go into exile. They forget their language. They pick up Aramaic. They return. And even when he begins to read the scriptures later on, when Ezra shows up, it's going to be in the book of Ezra. He shows up. He starts reading the text of scripture, and everybody's like, we don't know what you're saying. We speak Aramaic. So he's going to have to have a public reading of scripture. He'll have to read it in Hebrew and then wait for someone to translate it into Aramaic for the Jews. So he's got translators, so he's dealing with that issue. Of course, I I would think uh, he could do the translating himself. The point being there is he is going to be so serious about the the word, the text, the scripture, the prophets, the history, that he's going to go and kind of compile it. Just like Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now again, you can go a couple ways. You can go the mystical way with Moses writing Genesis, that Moses went up on a mountain, sat down, and God says, okay, let's begin. In the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. Are you keeping up? And Moses is just writing down dictation. Or Moses, what I like to think about, again, I think he's inspired by God, but I like to think that Moses had documents. That's why it says the toledote formula in the book of Genesis, the toledote. This is the, the account of Jacob. This is the account of Shem. This is the account of, and it, it's the Hebrew is toledote. Meaning, this is the written document of Shem. This is the written document of Noah. This is the written document of Terah, or the family of Terah. And so he would have had access to all those documents, and he, because they would have been handed down, and then he would have then compiled them into the book of Genesis. Like he says, this is the account of Jacob. And so those are all put together. So Moses wrote, Jesus says Moses wrote Genesis. But he didn't just blindly write it, and he definitely didn't just make it up. Yeah, you could go with the dictation from God, but more of the normal way of doing things would be if there was already literature written that he just compiled historically, and he gives you this account, and then he begins in Exodus with his own story. So Moses, I would say, edited the book of Genesis, compiled this information, and he gave you the book of Genesis. Ezra's going to come along, and he's got the writings of the courts, uh, we would say uh, uh, kings, first and second kings. You've got the writings of the priests evaluating the kings and what's going on, the chronicles. Uh, and he's going to take and, uh, you know, polish, not poly, yeah, polish them up, edit them, and put an ending on them so that this is how it ends. Uh, and that's going to be done probably at this time. So if there's any editing going on, he's closing out. And that's where we ended up last week. Uh, go to Second Kings, and I just want to review this. Second Kings chapter seventeen, verse twenty-four, and that's where we pick up here. Um, 
on the notes here, 2 Kings chapter 17. And you can see, and you, you should be critical in your thinking. You should be critical of what I'm saying. I don't agree with that. You know, maybe you say, well, I am a minimalist. I just think Moses was a figment of our, the Jewish imagination. I disagree, but you can think that. Or you can think, no, 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 this was all dictated by God to people. Ezra didn't do any adjusting. But then someone had to close down, like we say, the book of uh, Deuteronomy because it says, Mo, it talks about Moses' burial and stuff. It's kind of like, well, it's going to be hard to write your own burial. So someone had to close that down, which is not uh, beyond the text of Scripture. Okay, listen to this right here. This is the end of Second Kings. We're talking about Samaria, northern Israel, being destroyed in 722, 722, 721 by the Assyrians. And we, we read this last week. I'm going to review it because it's very important that we understand. Because these people that are already in the land, when they come back, the people that are causing the opposition, are, uh, they follow Yahweh. They, they are living in the land of Israel. They consider themselves part of the land. And here comes these exiles in from Babylon back to Judea. And uh, they're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And so these people obviously want to kind of get involved before you move. You moved into our neighborhood. Uh, we want to be part of it. And, and in a very, very unchristian way, Zerubbabel and Joshua say, no, we have no part of you. You cannot help us build our church. It's our, our temple. And, and it's kind of like, what an attitude. Well, here is this right here is the people of that these are the people that came down to help and here we go we review it and i'm going to point some things out again chapter 17 second kings verse 24 the king of assyria would be sargon the second uh brought people from babylon kutha ava hamath and sepharvium i'm going to show you other emperors that did this because this became an assyrian policy and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria. So they take Israel, the Assyrians take Israel and move many of them away, deport them in other countries. They bring many of the people from other countries in, and that upsets the balance. Like we said, it upsets their culture, their religion, their language. Uh, they can't get along. They can't rebel. You cannot even get along in your neighborhood, let alone rebel against the empire, which was a brilliant idea, divide and conquer. Uh, and they settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria. These people, these are Gentiles that came in. Now, of course, they come in with their own language. They come in with their own culture. They come with their own gods. And you've got to assume, if you put God on the throne, that they are also under judgment. Now, the Bible doesn't point that out, but I'd put that as an not explicit point, like we talked about last night, but an implicit point. If they're being deported, they're not being blessed by God. They're being disciplined. They may have gone through a four-generation cycle themselves, and God is just mixing up the Middle East because everybody's so depraved. Now, you're going to see how depraved they are in just a moment. To replace the Israelites, they took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. That's Yahweh. They did not worship the Lord Yahweh. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. So wild animals had taken over the land, just like happens in the fourth cycle of discipline. It was reported to the king of Assyria, probably Sargon II at that time, saying, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the, what the God of that country requires. Now, us as Christians, we know there is one true God, creator of the universe, 
controller of history. There's only one way of salvation. There's one God. Uh, anything underneath that trying to imitate him is a false God. These people, this culture, this generation, Middle East, they had an understanding that there was local gods. Like each, they had no trouble having many gods. Like, you've got your gods of your neighborhood, you've got your gods. Well, we found out our God is so-and-so, and this is how we do it. And so if I want to maybe, you know, especially that we had pictures up here before, when the Assyrians took over Syria, they took their gods with them. They didn't crush their gods, curse their gods. They're like, whoa, we've actually captured the god of Hamath. And they bring him back over here because obviously you people didn't treat him right because we're destroying you. But hey, Math, we don't want you upset. We'll take you over here and we'll put you in the shrine with all of the other gods. Oh, great is Hamath or whatever, Marduk or whoever the god is. They, 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 they really believed that local people had their own local gods. And if you got destroyed, you didn't please them. But now as conquerors, we will. So they, they see, they realize that they're in the land of Samaria and that there's a god of Samaria and they don't know how to please him. What, what are the rules? I mean, we're in his land and he's not happy. The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. He's got a great idea. Well, you know, we need to send someone in there from that land. Are, are you with me? This is, this is funny. This is ironic. This is humor. Uh, the priests of northern Israel uh, have just been judged by God and deported. We understand the four cycles. Now, they're in, in de- they've been deported because they have failed. But now, Sargon says, oh, well, you know what? You're having trouble over in Samaria? We're going to send one of these priests back to you, and they'll help. They'll explain how they were worshiping Yahweh so that you can continue to worship Yahweh so he'll bless the land. It's like, no, he just got done cursing these people with the prophets warning him he was coming, and now they're sending these loser priests back to help. And they're, they're, they're false priests. Okay, so he's going to send them back. So right there, that's the first strike against these people uh, that we've got on the board. Okay. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people. Let's send a false prophet, a false teacher, a false priest, and have them teach their false religion to the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled, in parentheses I add, for his failure to please Yahweh... Uh, came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship Yahweh. Now, it's like, you can't. You, you do not. This is like, it's not, it cannot work. You understand the irony of that and how that's set up for failure. But now, remember, the people he's helping teach a false Yahweh religion. He's teaching them a false way of religion. These people, they're not, they're not like converting. They're not forsaking the ways of the world and moving to become a follower of Christ. They're just saying, you know, we've got all these other messiahs and other gods. We just don't know what Jesus wants. What does Jesus want? Well, Jesus, we know, wants your whole being. He's going to transform. You've got to forsake not just the other gods, but even the ways of the world, even your own personal opinions. You've got to forsake and join Christ. This is not even close to a Billy Graham crusade. 
They're just saying, we've got all our other gods that we, are, we brought with us, and we've got temples, we've got shrines, we've got sacrifices, we've got booths or brothels, we'll see that here in a moment, and, and we've got burning our children. But somehow the lions keep eating us. So tell us, Yahweh's responsible for the lions, so they get a false priest from northern Israel to teach them how to worship Yahweh, and they just take Yahweh and put him over here. With all, okay, now we're, now we're fine. So they're going to have this whole series of gods, including Yahweh. And so there's the name of Yahweh in the shrines with all the other gods. And they're worshiping the way of a false priest that was rebuked by the prophets. So this is not even, only thing, only thing that remains is the name of Yahweh. Everything else is completely twisted. These are the people that are going to have 200 years worth of children or 150 years worth of children who are going to walk in and say, hey, we want to help build the temple. It's like, no, you, you can't. All right. And he taught them how to worship Yahweh. Verse 29, nevertheless. Now this was, I, I'm going to say this, and I can't guarantee it, but it's something like this. This is being written, I would suggest, by Ezra. You see? Because he knows all this history. Because this is not being written by someone in 722, because it's, it's already happened. It had to be written, someone looking back through history. And you'll see it even clearer as we go. And you don't have to accept Ezra. That's just a good guess. Uh, nevertheless, each national group, remember these are all different nations, made its own gods in several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines. So the golden calf shrines that remain from the golden calf that became Yahweh worship they're moving their gods into those shrines, and now they're putting Yahweh back in there. They probably got a golden calf somewhere. The people of Samaria had made at the high places. And this is what Amos and Micah condemned all this. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. We're going to look at this in a moment. So these, Babylon brought Sukkoth Benoth. The men from Kathah made Nergal. And the men from Hamath made Asima, Ashima, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartek, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and uh, Anamalek, the gods of Sephavim. They worshipped the Lord. They worshipped Yahweh right there on the list. And they worshipped Yahweh. But they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests. So they've got the false priests coming in from exile. But they also took their own people and made them priests, including priests for Yahweh. So we're so far from the Mosaic law, the Levitical priesthood. It's not even close. But yet, if you ask them, they would tell you all about Yahweh. They're worshiping him right here. I mean, what do you, you think I'm ignorant? I worship Yahweh right here. It's like, yeah, I do think you're ignorant. Okay. They worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. Here, look at this verse, verse 34. To this day. So that would be the day that this is being put down. They persist in their former practices. Now, that line right there would be justification for Ezra justifying what's going to take place 
in uh, 520 or uh, when they start building the city, the walls, and Joshua, or in this case, in 520, Joshua and, excuse me, 536, when uh, the high priest Joshua and Zerubbabel say, you have no part in this. Because Ezra's saying they don't because to this very day they persist in this stupidity. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinance, the laws and commands of the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites and then told them, do not worship other gods. Uh, Verse 40, they would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practice. Even while these people were worshiping Yahweh, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren, now we're on the map right here, continue to do as their fathers did. So clearly that wasn't written before the Babylonian captivity. That was written after. We come back from Babylon, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. Now, um, I'm going to read on page four here of the notes. Uh, this again, again, please stay with me. They've, they've come back in 536 to rebuild the temple. They get the altar set up, but they have opposition. That opposition is going to shut them down mentally, uh, physically, the capabilities. They cannot build the temple, and the longer they go, the more they're convinced they can't build the temple until prophets Zechariah and Haggai show up and go, what are you doing? Why haven't you built the temple? Well, we can't. It's like, well, yes, you can. You've got a decree from Cyrus. You've got a decree from Yahweh. Build the temple. And then they they begin doing it. So, chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, um, again, point one, the enemies were also the people around them. Uh, That's the people that's all written right there. I read through those verses. Uh, Turn the page. Uh, yeah, the word exiles is literally the sons of captivity. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2 on page 5. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, now the people I just described, the child, their children and grandchildren, they came and they says to Zerubbabel, Joshua, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshar Hadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now we find out that these people were brought in by Eshar, and I do not have Eshar, oh boy, Eshar Hadan. All right, I should start scribbling. The actual word is written right there, bottom of page, Eshar, oh my gosh, Eshar Hayden, two D's and one R. Okay, but just read the notes. I have spell check. <laughs> There's no spell check here. Uh, Ishar Hayden, or Hayden, uh, that's 680 uh, to 669. Is that right? Is that what it says, 669? Uh, he was the Assyrian emperor. Now, with that being said, remember, uh, northern Israel was attacked in 724, and they fall in 722, some would say 721. It, they were attacked by, uh, you can see right here, uh, Shalmaneser, who reigned from 726 to 722. So Shalmaneser began the attack on northern Israel. 
he dies the final moments of the battle, and Sargon, Sargon is going to come in and finish it. In fact, by 721, it has fallen. So Sargon is the one who began the deeper, or I suppose Shalmaneser would have began deporting some of them, but actually Sargon is the one who finished the battle and then deported everybody and began importing everyone. Interesting, if you look at that chart, you've got Sargon and then Sennacherib, his son Sennacherib. Now you know Sennacherib, he's going to come and he just marches right through Israel because they've been torched and comes down and Sennacherib is going to destroy and this is something you need to understand. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem, you know the story. Because Isaiah and Hezekiah go to the temple, pray, and God says he won't shoot an arrow here, and 185,000 of his men die. But up until that point, he destroyed every fortified city in Jerusalem. The last city to be destroyed was Jerusalem, and Judah had fallen, including Lachish and Ezekiel. In fact, the Bible records, and we've been to those places, uh, you can see the destruction layers, but those are the last two fortified cities before he marched on Jerusalem. And in fact, he sent someone to say, hey, we're coming to here. Nick says, we're about done with Lachish. Uh, and that's, that's Sennacherib. These people that are, are being mentioned here in, right here in chapter 4, verse 2 of Ezra, saying in 520, they're saying, we were brought here uh, by Eshar Hayden. And that would be 680 to 679. So notice, this was when Israel fell, 722. They're still being deported in, in, uh, in 680. Uh, and they say, we seek your God, Yahweh, and have been sacrificing to him since 680. Well, let's say some, well, let's just say 670. We could get a better date, but from since 670, and now we're in 520. So they say, we've been sacrificing to him for uh, what with that 150 years is that right 150 years we've been we've been worshiping god welcome to the neighborhood we're glad to help build the temple because we know exactly how he wants to be worshiped we've been worshiping him since ishar hayden's day and that's what is being said right there who brought us here uh and he, again there's several things there you can see um, turn, don't forget that chart that chart's kind of useful uh turn to page six uh this is startling okay uh, the first thing on the top of page 6, these are the names of the people that came uh, from Babylon. Then Cathah, which is 12 miles northeast of Babylon. In parentheses, I put the name of their god there that they brought. I'm going to explain their gods to you. Ava, and that's unknown. We can't identify exactly where Ava is, but they worship th those two gods. Hamath, which is up on the Antus River, you see right up there, the Antus River, up by Aleppo and Haran, up in that area. Or I suppose Ribla would be, cool. well, there's Hamath right there by Ribla. Though they, see, they came down, they were conquered in that area and deported down. Some Israelites went up to Hamath. Some Israelites went over to Babylon. Some of them went up towards the north, uh, if they're going to re be replacing. And then uh, uh, Sefer. Safervium. Okay, they're imported. Uh, and I got listed here. I broke down just the things we read. They did not fear the Lord, and we just got done reading it. They had a priest from Bethel come in and teach them how to worship Yahweh and probably makes golden calf worship in it. Um, now, here is the names of the gods. This is just interesting. These are the gods they brought with them. It's... it's uh, 
6.5. Every imported nation brought their gods with them and continued to worship them along with worshiping Yahweh like a Canaanite. The first one is Sakoth Benoth, the Babylons, Babylonian. There's no God. The only place that word is found is in that text of Scripture. So there's no God known by this name. So you just, it's a Babylonian God. Unless you take the Hebrew words, the word Sakoth, this is sad, if, if this is literal. It makes sense if you push it. Sakoth means booths or shelters. You, you see that used in the feast. And Benoth is the plural for the word bath. Like you've got Ben means son of. Bath is the female, daughter of, or daughter. The plural is Benoth. So Sakoth Benoth means booths for the daughters. Meaning, they're little shelters, little houses, little temples, little brothels for the daughters. And so that's where you'd put the daughters, and that's where they would worship in front of the shrines, the gods. They'd worship by going into the brothel with the daughters and worship the god. That's, that's the best way of explaining that word right there. It's not the name of the god, it's the name of the practice. The, and I say, well, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, yes. Well, wait until we start then burning the children that they produce in those brothels. Because that that's definitely says that. Uh, the next god is Nurgle, which is a mess. We know this god, a Mesopotamian god that continued into the Persian period. The deity of war, death, and disease. The god of the underworld originates from Kutha, where it was mentioned here, located in northern Mesopotamia. That's the local god of those people in northeastern uh, Mesopotamia. So that's the God of death, war. So right there, you're going to have, Yahweh's going to go right over there. If this is true, that's where the brothels are at to worship the God. Here's the God of death and disease and darkness right here. Uh, this next one is Tartak. It's the prince of darkness. That's literal. That's the, he's the prince of darkness. I mean, imagine, I mean, well, who would the prince of darkness possibly be? I mean, you don't have to venture too far. has to do with being chained, bound, and shut up. So he's the prince of darkness, and he's locked and chained in darkness. And he's the prince of that darkness that you go and worship that god. So you stop by the brothel, you go by the god of the death and disease, and then stop by the chained-up god of darkness. Oh, and then Yahweh's next. Uh, Ashima, the goddess of fate, that's a female goddess, the goddess of fate, your whole fortune's wrapped up in her control. And then Adromelech, and the next one, Adromelech and uh, Adamelech, the sun and moon. Adromelech is a form of the sun god who also is the personal name of King Sennacherib's rebellious son. So Adromelech's the name of the god, but Sennacherib, after he was defeated by the angel lord, returned back to Nineveh, built a palace with all the details of his last great battle of Lake. He surrounded himself with the details of that and then didn't want to go anywhere just kind of stopped. Well, he met the angel of the Lord. It's like, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go anywhere. Well, his son, Adromelech, killed him. And his, his name, his son, Adromelech, was named after the sun god, that god. Uh, he doesn't become the next emperor. Another son does. Uh, well, in fact, you see, you can see uh, when Adromelech kills Sennacherib, Ishar Hayden, the one who brought these people in, replaces his father, Sennacherib. And then page 7, Adamelech, a female deity, represented the moon. 
and uh, it means Anu is king. So these were the Gentile gods that were poor. That's what the text says. These are the gods, the people. God kicked northern Israel out because they were failing to worship him properly. They deport, import a bunch of people, and they bring this mess with them. And then they get eaten by lions. So they say, what we need is a priest that got kicked out to show us how to actually worship Yahweh. Of course, he fit right in with the shrines that were going on there. That is the people and the culture that comes down and says, yes, we've been worshiping Yahweh. We know how we do this. We want to be part of this. And, and uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're like, no. No, there's no way you're going to help us. Well, you think you're better than us? Well, I think we're worshiping a completely different God than you. And so you can see it's like, that's not, a, they said no. These, you could have had a great outreach program. You could have had like potato salad and stuff and had donuts and coffee in the foyer and got to meet these people. Yeah, and pretty soon you're going to praise and worship service looks just like it does the God of darkness up on the stage with your smoke machine. It's like, well, we're, it's like, well we reached the, we're reaching the lost. And no, the lost are reaching you. Anyway, that's what has happened there. Okay, I start preaching, sorry. Okay, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. That's what we saw right there, chapter 4, verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And as we said last week, they are saying, We have paperwork from Cyrus that says we are to build a temple. We don't have paperwork from Cyrus. says, you go over there and get a, get a committee together, get everybody involved in this. You build your temple. He didn't say anything about you guys. Plus, the Lord God told us to do it. Plus, we've got reason not to. That's what's being said there. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then the people around them, because they weren't welcome, these enemies that are uh, of the people, the people of the land now, or they're called the enemies, the people around them, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. That's 520. Uh, excuse me, 536. They, they, they're afraid. Wait, they're going to have opposition. They're getting canceled. They're having trouble with their trade routes, finances, everything. Uh, and they were discouraged. And discouraged means in, in, intimidation, mocking, suggesting legal action. Make them afraid is threatening. So again, it's going to be both physical and legal action. Chapter 4, verse 5. They, the people of the land, bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, this entire reign of Cyrus, and down to the reign of Darius in 520. That means all from that time on, 536, they could not get started all the way through Cyrus. Cambyses came, attacked Egypt, and went on, disappears on, around Mount Carmel. Uh, no one knows what happened, probably assassinated, but no one knows. Uh, his pseudo-brother, uh, pseudo-Smyrnus, which was a dead, uh, his brother Smyrnus was dead, but pseudo-Smyrnus said, yeah, I wasn't dead, tried to take over. He had a revolt right there. Darius had to put the revolt down and take over. So in 520, 521, the empire is very unstable because they've lost the emperor. Uh, there's a revolt going on. It was trying to be the president. No one knows who's in control. Darius stabilized it. In 520, in that moment, that's when Haggai and Zechariah step up and say, it's time to build the temple. And they start building it with the encouragement. And by 516, the temple is built. And so that's where we're at on chapter, five, chapter 4, verse 5. We go back, I'm going to go back to the, if you have your Bibles, I'm going back to Ezra. Look at the text here in the Bible. Because if, I, if you'll allow me right here, we are in chapter 4 of Ezra, verse 5. But beginning in verse 6, now we're going to switch directions. or We're going to, we're going to jump 
way over to here. So, and we will. But chapter 4, verse 6 starts talking about the days of Xerxes. It goes into the days of Artaxerxes, and that continues all the way up to verse 23. We're going to cover that tonight in my mind. Hang on. But then in chapter 4, verse 24 is really the next verse in our chronology, and it stopped happening up until the days of Darius. Now we jump all the way through chapter 4 to verse 24. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it stopped here. Nothing happened until the second year. We're going to say 520. Uh, And now we begin chapter 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Idu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then, and we, read the, we went through all those books. That's when that happens. Those two books happen right there. And then because of that, Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Joshua, set to work to rebuild the house of the God of Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them at that time. And we, we'll start talking about that next. But that, that's where that kicks in. Now, for some reason, and again, I gave you an idea. I think it's because Ezra's just recording all the opposition they face, including after the temple was built up until the time he gets there. We now go back to chapter 5, verse 5. So we are in 520 right now. And we're going to return to 520, but Ezra wants us to come down and talk about Xerxes' time and Artaxerxes' time. I scribble right there, Artaxerxes' time. Uh, And this is important because right here, he's going to say no to the building of the walls and shut it down, Artaxerxes. And then in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's wine bearer is going to come in and talk to him. And you know the story, we'll talk about it. And then he's going to say, well, what do you need? Well, he says, I'm going to need timber, I'm going to need paperwork, I'm going to need transportation. And Xerxes, or, yeah, Artax Xerxes says, we're here. Sign this, how much time do you need? He said, well, I need about two years. Okay, well, here's, here's a pass for two years, here, your, your, uh, your passport, and uh, we'll see you in two years. Good luck with that. And that's when Nehemiah goes over and starts building the walls. So Artax Xerxes is going to say no. Then Nehemiah is going to walk in as a personal attendant, and he's going to say, well, yes, go ahead. Now, Again, it's interesting with Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't get to come back to the land and live. He gets to come back to the land. He's still working for Artaxerxes, but I'll give you a certain time period. Because even in the book, it says, I've got to go back. I've got, and he had a return, hoping to maybe come back later. But anyway, we're now going to talk about that time period. So here we go. And I don't want to make this more complicated than it is. But on page 8... There are possibly three letters, one, two, three letters from the Samaritans. And then Artaxerxes is going to respond with one letter. So very clearly, chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read, oh, no, excuse me, that's Hagia, yeah, they got that verse in there. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6 is 486. Now, you're, you're free to say, ah, and adjust this, and, and we want this, the words, the text of Scripture is correct. Me weaving this and explaining it, it's like, okay, Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, it says, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, now Ahasuerus is the name of Xerxes in the book of Esther, but it's Xerxes. In the beginning of his reign, they, the, the enemy, now again, this was the enemy in, in, in 536, now this is the enemy 
in 5 or 486. It's the same people. It's, it's an entire generation later, two generations later, but they're still the same people, the same attitude, the same religion. Uh, in, in, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an uh, accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I think that's all we've got. In 486, they wrote to Xerxes an accusation against the Jews, and it's in the beginning of his reign. The beginning of his reign is 486. Now, what's taking place right there? See, Xerxes, Darius dies, and Xerxes becomes the emperor, and when that takes place, Egypt revolts. So, you know, Egypt is down here. Egypt revolts. The Assyrians are over there in Nineveh in that area. Uh, he has to march down, and he marches right through the land of Israel, Syria, Israel, to put down the revolt in Egypt. And so that's the, 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 his, his reign begins, Egypt revolts, and as he's going by, in his first year, they write a letter to him. Maybe because he's in the neighborhood. It's just, they're just happening at the same time. Now again, notice Darius let them build the temple. As soon as he dies, they may be writing the letter not because he's passing through the neighborhood. They may be writing the letter because, okay, Darius let him get away with building the temple. Uh, we're going to write and start accusing him. Uh, the Jews get some paper, you know, like, you know, you got that file at work that is like, oh, I'm going to put this in your file. You know, they're just saying, well, let's get another letter in the file of the Jews. Uh, so Xerxes is going to have this paperwork trail. And the Persians, as you know, are documenting everything. Uh, even Xerxes couldn't sleep one night, and he has calls for them to read from the, the archives, just reading events. And so we've got all these cuneiform tablets and stuff of everything they wrote. So it goes in their file in 486, an accusing letter in Xerxes. And that's, that's it. That is all it says, I think, about that letter. Okay. Ezra chapter 4, verse 7, the next verse. In the days of Artaxerxes. Why did I write Xerxes after that? See, that, that's a mistake right there. In the days of Artaxerxes, I wrote Xerxes. I, I, not why, I don't know why I put that there. I think I was putting it. I think I was, here's, okay, yeah. I thought I did it. I, I didn't do it, so I did it there. I made a mistake, which, I mean, I'm, you shouldn't be amazed, but I'm just saying there's another mistake. In the day, now this this. Again, I don't want to make this more confusing than it is. The English Standard Version says, in the days of Artaxerxes, he's going to reign from 465 to 424, and that's, that's, going, that's right in this time period. Right? That's going to involve Ezra coming. It's going to involve Nehemiah working for him. Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic, and translated. Now, Aramaic is the, the international language. It's like Greek becomes the international language after Alexander. Like today, English is the international language, you know, per se, for a while at least. Uh, uh, Aramaic was the international language, which is, I, I'm going to say this right here, that's interesting. The letter was written in Aramaic. It's the international language, but then it says, and translated. If it was written in Hebrew, and then translated into Aramaic, that would make sense. But you'd think the king of Persia can read Aramaic. But it's possible that it hasn't, he doesn't know how to read Aramaic himself, so it was translated. Or it could be it was written in Aramaic, and Ezra saying, and translated into Hebrew, 
So we've got a copy. I, that, I've got that question written down. Uh, points, point five. Uh, okay, we'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. Uh, this, the likely date of this letter is 464 B.C. Also, with the word Bislam can be a personal name, or it may be the revocalization of the Hebrew word, which means, is, uh, which is Sisalom, which means with the approval of. In the days of Artaxerxes, with the approval of Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of the associates, a letter was written to Artaxerxes. So Bishlium may be a name. It may just mean with the approval of. These guys all came together and approved it. It can go either way. English Standard Version goes with the personal name. Uh, this is all that is said about this letter. is merely a documenting of another attempt to thwart the work of the Jews. So in, in right around here, again, we don't know exactly this date, but 464, this letter is written not to Xerxes, but to our tax Xerxes uh, is, is getting another letter. Now, many people, uh, I'll point this out, the language of the text of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, the, first, the beginning of the letter up to the middle of verse 7 is in Hebrew. If you go and find a text of the book of, of, of Ezra, it's all in Hebrew up until the middle of chapter 4, verse 7. Then in chapter 4, verse 7, halfway through that verse, it switches to Aramaic, even in Ezra's book. And it continues up until chapter 6, verse 18. And then in chapter 6, verse 18, it stops the Aramaic. And chapter 6, verse 19, it starts in Hebrew. And it's Hebrew the rest of the way. Daniel does the same thing. When Daniel's prophecies involve Israel or its information for the Jews, it's in Hebrew. As soon as he starts talking about the nations and the world, it goes to Aramaic. And so Daniel goes back and forth. All, all the texts that are copied and handed down, it, it's like that. Uh, so that was probably the way it was originally written. Now, this next letter I'm going to introduce you to right here, this may be connected to this letter. This may be the same letter. I'm presenting it. This is a letter in verse 6, which I think is clear, because verse 7 gives you completely different time, a different king. The same point. They're accusing the Jews. Now we get this next letter, which actually may be this letter, but I think the way you read this, and other people do also, this is now a third example of a letter. Now, this letter is going to have a response from Artaxerxes. I'd like to get through that here tonight. So here we go. On page 9, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, now we're writing in, now it's in Aramaic. It's all in Aramaic now. Notice this right here. This would also be around 464, 465. Uh, notice this. It says, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshia, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Now, what I'm saying is that sounds like we just got done saying that in verse 7. And these, they, these guys wrote a letter. Now they're saying, okay, here's the commander, and what we have right here in this, this letter, and it may be the same as the second letter. This may just be the documenting of the writing of it. You've got the commander, and this commander is in charge of the territory. He's like, the, not the king, but he's like the guy the king put in charge. Now, this guy's the scribe. Now, in, this sounds like this is the boss and this is the secretary. That that's would be a fair. This guy tells this guy what to write. And in this case, he is. But the scribe, this king, the king Artaxerxes in this case, would have appointed this commander 
for this area of northern Israel or Samaria, Bethel in that area. He also would have sent a scribe. The scribes, were they would be the fulfillment of the eyes and ears of the king. And that is, that is a Persian reference. They are the eyes and ears of the king, meaning, what are you doing here? I'm just taking notes. It'd be like going to work every day, and who's this guy? He's just going to write down everything you do and say. Don't mind him. You have no interaction with him. He's just here to write down everything you do. This is like big brother surveillance before the internet and before cell phones. This guy, this is just your personal cell phone. He's just going to record everything you say. And so in a sense, this, this sounds like a secretary just going to work for him. But in a sense, this is actually a guy that was not in charge of, has no authority. He's just going to, I'll just tell the king everything you do. This is going straight to Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes was the authority, but the scribe gave all the information. Uh, and so that's what that is saying right there. Uh, so chapter 4, verse 8, Rehum, the commander, and Shemshah, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. And I think I've said those things right there. Uh, commander is also could be uh, uh, the officer or uh, the master of the decree. That's another translation. Okay, chapter 4, verse 9. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates. Now the word associates is a word that means uh, would be family members or it refers to people of, with the same parents. So it means uh, the family, uh, the, the mob. The, so anybody that's, it's like, uh, I don't know, think if you had like a president that had like family members that were like connected, that weren't really in the politics, but they were in the business. They're like the associates. They're like the mafia, the family. So this guy's just the figurehead, but everybody's profiting over there. So the commander described the eyes and the ears, and all the family members who had positions and were making money on bribery because of the commander all decided, let's write a letter against the Jews. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Uh, the judges and governors, the officials, and then the Persians, the men of Erech, and the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and goes through all that. Erech is the ancient city of Yorick, which is where Gilgamesh comes from. Okay, chapter 4, verse 10. And the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Ashnapper, and that's Ashurbanipal, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria. So now if you go back to that little chart, notice we've talked about Ishar Hardin. We talked about Sargon, Sennacherib, Ishar Hardin. This guy is uh, uh, Ashurbanipal, and he's, he's one of my favorite ones, Ashurbanipal, uh, 668 to 627. Uh, and I saw a lot of images of him at the uh, British Museum. But uh, what's cool about him, he wanted, he wanted, he, he knew the, 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 the scribes were ripping him off because he, the, a lot of these kings were great warriors, but they were illiterate. Ashurbanipal, I've told you this before when we were talking about the Assyrians, but he, he wanted to learn how to write. And so in all of his, the murals of him like, you know, crushing a lion or shooting arrows or something from his chariot, uh, he's got his little belt, and I, I don't have a picture of him here anymore, but there's always these two little things in his belt. And what they are, they're the, uh, 
the scribe pencil. They're the, they're the tool that you would write with. And he was so proud of it. And he even, he even brags in his writings. He says that he learned uh, how to read cuneiform. He learned how to write it. In fact, he was so skilled, he could debate and dialogue with the scribes about the ancient writings. And he says the writings that were written before the flood. And that would be before the days of Gilgamesh and all you know, the poetry of Gilgamesh and all that stuff that comes down in cuneiform writing. He could read and write it. And the stuff that they stole from Babylon, he made, brought it up and made a huge library of all these cuneiform tablets. A lot of them are in the British Museum. And he was very proud of that. Stylus. That's what I'm saying, the stylus. I'm trying to think of that word. I, sorry, I didn't want to say pens, but stylus. So uh, Ashurbanipal was, uh, anyway, that's chapter 4, verse 10. And the rest of the nations whose great and noble Ashurbanipal, so notice how long, that's a lot later, that's after Eshar Hardin, uh, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest. So these people that are writing in, uh, at, at this time in 464, they know they didn't come from Sargon or Sennacherib or even Eshar Hayden. They came from the deportation of Ashurbanipal. Now what's interesting about that deportation because they're mentioning that they didn't, who they came from. This, these, this is the king who brought us into this land. Ashurbanipal, point one, is the Assyrian king who set Manasseh free, most likely. Does, the Bible doesn't say that, but he was set free during Ashurbanipal's time in Babylon. Uh, these deported people likely were deported by Ashurbanipal after a major revolt took place between 652 and 648 against them by his brother, Shamash Shumukin. Now, Isaiah refers to this, 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 this revolt. So the, ro- the revolt ended with his brother, Shamash, just jumping into the flames. Instead of being tortured, he just jumps into the flames. And then all, that city and all the cities involved in that revolt that took four years to put down, they were all deported to the west. So that's these people. These are the descendants from the 664 deportation uh, sometime in, uh, in Artaxerxes' reign, writing this letter. And that's just interesting that they, they mentioned that where, they, where they're from and that you can go back in history and find out why they were deported. Uh, so these events, uh, they're writing this 200 years after their deportation. Now here we go, just for the fun of it, here we go, what time is it? This is the letter they wrote. Now we actually have a letter. Oh boy. And the, and the text says this, chapter 4, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Here's what they write. We'll pick this up next week if we need to. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, that's beyond the other side of the Euphrates, send Greece. That'd be everything on this side of the Euphrates. It's probably Syria. And, and now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Now, the, the, the temple's already built, okay? That's been built for four decades. That, that they're, they're building the walls. See, the Nehemiah goes to rebuild the walls. The reason the walls aren't built because they don't want them to have walls. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations, and the foundation would be where the walls stood on. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Again, we're just looking out for your best interest. We wouldn't want you to miss out on your tax dollars. 
Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, which that's a reference, meaning salt was a way of payment, meaning we're, we're financed by the palace. Since we're on your payroll, obviously we're concerned about them paying their taxes. You can understand that. And it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. We're standing right here watching the king be dishonored daily. And that's not right. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that a search may be made in the book of records. That's all those cuneiform tablets we were talking about. And again, notice who you're talking to. Uh, Artaxerxes, who again has inherited all the writings from the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They're just loaded with cuneiform. Go back and read. the. Re- go, do a Google search. Just do a Google search on the records of your fathers and you will find in the book of records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces and they can go back and talk about Sennacherib they can talk about the revolts that took place against Nebuchadnezzar if it be the first second or third deportation uh, and learn that this is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces notice what happened to the Assyrians they fell the Babylonians they fell and now the Persians you start messing with these guys your empire can fall too. And that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why the city was laid waste. That's why Nebuchadnezzar burnt it to the ground. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Do you understand what he just said? If Jerusalem is built king, if Jerusalem has walls, I guarantee you're going to lose all the territory on this side of the Euphrates. Okay, now that's a little overstatement. You understand what he's saying? They're going to rebuild Jerusalem and trans-Euphrates. That's everything here. You're, everything is gone. You won't be able to stop them. Okay, our text, Xerxes, here's his reply. Verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria. That's just north of Jerusalem or Judah. And in the rest of the province beyond the river. I'm talking to you in Samaria and all that other territory that I could lose beyond the river. Greetings. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. Notice, I didn't read it. It was read before me. So we're talking maybe about an illiterate king. Not like Ashurbanipal. Again, or it's just in a foreign language. It maybe needs to be translated into the Persian language. That's maybe more likely. But again, if it's an Aramaic... Why can't the Persian king read Aramaic if that's the universal language? And I made a decree and search has, I made a decree. I put in a Google request, a Google search, a decree, and search has been made. And it has come up with some results. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. Now you understand, who is that? You know who that is? That's David. David did extend his territory. You can read it. David extended territory up and bordered on the Euphrates River. Not you know, the whole thing, but all the trade routes all the way up to the Euphrates River. David controlled. That's what Solomon inherited. So that, if, if, they're, if, they're, if they're being... And again, this is Artaxerxes, the Persian, writing from over there in, in Susa or Ecbectana, uh, writing back... He's saying we did find a record that they did at one time control that whole territory. And maybe he's overstating it, but if there's actual documentation, and you know Google doesn't lie, and neither do the Persian archives, um, that would be referring to David's control of that entire area, which is kind of interesting that they've got records that far back. Again, unless it's an overstatement. 
but it is a true statement if you consider David. Uh, and that mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, and again, David had money coming in. That's why they got so rich. They had money coming in. Solomon had money coming in from all the territories. Therefore, that's why they said silver was piled up in the streets. Where do we put it? I don't know, just dump it there. It's like right there by the concrete. Put the silver. I mean, it says that. Therefore, make a decree. Make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree. Now watch. Until a decree is made by me. No walls until I decide so. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt the king? I agree with you. Don't let this happen. Now, uh, then verse 23, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews, or the, 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 you know, the media. Uh, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. We've got a letter from Artaxerxes. You cannot be building your walls. And now if you flip over very quickly, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Look right there. That is four, on page 11, 464. Artaxerxes orders uh, the rebellious, rebellious city, Jerusalem, to stop. That's 464. I've got the verses written there. But 458, Artaxerxes, Ezra leaves, and the decree to rebuild is given. Uh, and that's probably a good countdown point for Daniel's prophecy. And then the, uh, Nehemiah gets a report in 446. And says, hey, how's it going? Since Artaxerxes says, build the wall, how's it going? The guy says, it's still lays in rubble. No one's done anything. Just like when Cyrus says, build the temple, it didn't get done until the prophets came. Artaxerxes is going to give a decree to say, okay, it's time to build 458, build, it, build the walls. And Nehemiah gets reported 446, nothing's happening. 12 years later, it's not happening. And that's when Artax, he comes in with the wine to Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes says, uh, boy, what's wrong? You don't look very happy today. He goes, how can I when my city lays in ruins? And that's the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes, why is he so quick to write the notes and say, well, go get that done? He's already given a decree to get it done. And it's not, it's not 12 years later, nothing's happened. So Nehemiah, what do you need? Go get that thing done. I already said build it. Why is it not getting done? Nehemiah goes, just like the prophets came and got the temple built, Nehemiah is going to come and fulfill the, and they fulfilled the decree of Cyrus. Nehemiah is going to come and fulfill the decree of Artaxerxes. Uh, I'll pray and we're done. Thank you for your patience. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We ask that we would consider these things, take them to heart, and allow them to be a light in our own lives to guide us and lead us more into the truth that you've revealed to us and the life you've wanted us to live. Again, we thank you for this opportunity. ask that we may be an influence at this time in our generation towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time.